Welcome to the Two Journeys Bible Study Podcast. This podcast is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode 29 in our Acts Bible Study Podcast. This episode is entitled, The Jerusalem Council on Circumcision, Part 1, where we'll discuss Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses that we're looking at today? I would consider Acts 15 to be one of the most significant theological sections of the book of Acts. You know, the book of Acts is about the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem through Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. But what is the gospel? What is the message that saves souls? And this is what they're fighting about. And we're going to see some individuals uh, who are called in other places the Judaizers, who were Pharisees who had come, it seems at least at, at a surface level, to a faith in Jesus Christ, but were preaching a false gospel, which Paul totally destroys in the book of Galatians and mentions in Philippians as well, uh, a mixture of works along with the finished work of Christ, a, a mixture of faith in Christ plus the works of the law. And that is rejected. It is not the gospel. And we have this Jerusalem council to thank for that. So I'm looking forward to walking through it with you today. Let me go ahead and read Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. What were these men teaching in Acts 15.1, and how is this similar to what happened in Galatia with Peter, as you mentioned at the beginning? Right. All right. So I'm going to say that Galatia, uh, sorry, uh, Acts 15.1 and 15.5 together give the whole picture. All right. So we want to look at these together. Uh, verse 1 says, some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. So let's just unfold that. Without circumcision, you're going to hell. Doesn't matter what you believe about Jesus. Doesn't mm -hmm. matter uh, your faith in Christ. None of that. That's, that's part of the equation. It's true. But it's not enough. 
you have to be circumcised in order to go to heaven, in order to have your sins forgiven. But that's not all. If you look at verse 5, then it says, Some of the believers who belonged to the party of Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must, so that's that it's not an option here, must, in order to go to heaven and not hell, must, what? What must they do? Be circumcised, okay, I already covered that, and required to obey the law of Moses. Oh, well, here it is. Hmm. Circumcision is a gateway into an entire legalistic lifestyle that Peter's going to say very plainly, a yoke that neither we nor our fathers were ever able to bear. And so that's there's this entire legalistic mentality that destroys the gospel. And, and Paul openly calls it in Galatians 1, a gospel uh, that we did not preach. If anyone should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. Paul is deadly serious about it in Galatians 1. So um, Acts 15.1 and 15.5 gives you the whole uh, picture. The Judaizers are Jewish people who had come, it seems, at some level to a faith in Jesus as Messiah, but believed that wasn't enough to be saved, said you had to add to it circumcision and the keeping of the entire law of Moses. These were Gentiles. The Gentiles had to become Jews, full-blown, obedient to the law of Moses Jews in order to be saved, and that's a false gospel. Now, you mentioned that Paul is deadly serious about this. How did Paul and Barnabas react, and what is the significance of the way the church solves this issue? Okay, so verse 2, it says this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. They're not backing down. And Paul uses some of his strongest uh, language, Galatians 3.1, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And and um, he says, I, concerning these false teachers, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. It's very vigorous language. Uh, he calls them dogs in Philippians 3, the mutilators of the flesh. He's, he is not pulling back. And, and he's basically saying, even if we are an angel from heaven should preach a gospel, let him be eternally condemned. A gospel other than what you receive, let him be eternally condemned. It is a false gospel. And so they're not backing down at all. They're going to fight for the truth of the gospel. How different is this, it seems, from what happened in Philippians, where some people are preaching the true gospel from bad motives just to cause trouble for Paul. And Paul is basically okay with it. He's saying, look, what does it matter as long as the full the true gospel is preached? But he's not that way in Galatians. He's not saying, what does it matter? It matters everything. A false gospel saves no souls. And fundamentally, what are we looking at here? We're looking at the teaching that Jesus isn't enough. Mm. When Jesus finished shedding his blood on the cross and said, it is finished, it really wasn't finished. What then Jesus, had Jesus accomplished by his blood? Nothing. It seems like uh, the Jews had the law of Moses before Jesus ever came. So what did his blood achieve? Or if they said, no, that was required, but you also have to keep the law as well, it's this plus that, uh, then Jesus is only 50% a savior. The rest is up to us to save ourselves. And if any part of the fabric of the code of our salvation is up to us, uh, Spurgeon said very plainly, the whole garment unravels. Mm. And so this is a false gospel of works, and they're going to fight against it strongly. And thankfully, so also did Peter and the council got it right. So they respond vigorously in the moment, but that's not where it ends. They go on to uh, deliver this message about this conflict to mm-hmm. Jerusalem. What happens along the way as mm-hmm. Paul and Barnabas traveled up to Jerusalem? And what, what does this teach us about the early church and about Christian mm-hmm. fellowship? So on the way, they're going from place to place, and the churches throughout Phoenicia and Samaria were hearing the record of the first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas's missionary journey, the things that we read in Acts 13 and 14, those two chapters, and all the exciting events there. And 
so they heard about that and probably more than we got in Acts 13 or 14. That was just a kind of a quick summary of the first missionary journey. So they're hearing these things and people are, are very excited. They're, they're glad, they're rejoicing. Uh, it says in verse three, this news made all the brothers very glad. The Gentiles are being converted. And we know this is just the beginning of 20 centuries of massive Gentile influx into the kingdom of God by faith in Christ, such, such that uh, by the end, not just of the book of Acts, but by the end of the first century and on, there are vastly more Gentile believers in Jesus as the Messiah than there were Jewish believers in Jesus as the Messiah. Now, how were Paul and Barnabas received by the church in Jerusalem, and what happens when they arrive? All right, so they're welcomed uh, by the church. They're welcomed by the leaders of the church. That's still kind of the, well, no, it, it was the theological center. The pillars of the church were there, including Peter. And so they were welcomed. Uh, these were the ones that uh, Paul says in uh, Galatians gave him the right hand of fellowship and were glad for him to go to the Gentiles while they continued to go to the Jews. So they welcomed them back and, and they were glad to hear everything God had done through them. Who stood up to oppose Paul and Barnabas? And what does verse 5 teach us about the significance of circumcision for the whole of the Christian life and for the doctrine of salvation? Okay, so this is a deep theological subject. It's addressed very much in uh, the book of Romans, but even more in detail, the issue of circumcision in the book of Galatians. So who, to answer your question, who who stands up to oppose them? Uh, they are Pharisee Christians is what they are. They wouldn't be there if they weren't Christians or at least claiming to be Christians. And, and I keep having to say that because Paul's saying, if you believe a false gospel, you're not really a Christian. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think he would have considered these people to be genuine believers. They're believe, believing a false gospel. But at any rate, they stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. Well, what does that entail? Well, think of all the ceremonial aspects, the dietary regulations, you know, where Jesus declared all foods clean, it's like, no, not so fast. They're back. We're back to kosher again and non-kosher. And then all of the Jewish uh, calendar of festivals, the three times a year pilgrimage. Uh, Jesus said uh, to the Samaritan woman, either on this mountain or in Jerusalem, will you worship the Father? The time of the place of a worship is going to end. Curtain in the temple torn in two from top to bottom, not so fast. We still have all the animal sacrifices to go. We still have all that. So what was fulfilled by Jesus? What mm. was achieved? And so it's just a, it's a major step backward here. And so they're required to obey the law of Moses. How about the, the crushing burden of the Sabbath regulations that the Pharisees had kept? You know how Jesus kept bumping into those and challenging them? Mm. So it's a whole legalistic works righteousness mindset that is so relentless and it crushes the soul. We know that the medieval Catholic version of it, uh, which uh, Martin Luther tried to live by, where you're trying by, he said, by monkery um, to win his way to heaven, he could never scrub enough floors or fast uh, long enough or pray hard enough in order to cleanse his conscience. Uh, his conscience kept accusing him and the terror of hell kept flogging him and he never got any peace. Mm. So that's what happens when you interject works into justification. But by contrast, we know from the book of Galatians, and this is the plain teaching, I think Galatians uh, 2.16 uh, is a summary of that whole book. What is the main thesis? Um, Paul writes there, uh, we know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. That pretty much says it. And so fundamentally, 
the gospel of justification by faith alone, apart from works of the law, is established in Galatians, in Romans, and here in uh, Acts 15. Andy, I think the way that you summarize circumcision as the kind of this gateway or doorway is so helpful because it shows that they were really talking about something much bigger, right? Mm-hmm. A lifestyle that was going to be bound again to the law rather yeah. than seeing Christ as the one who had come to give them freedom. Yeah, and there's a very strong statement that Paul makes in Galatians uh, 2.21. He says there, I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained by the law, then Christ died for nothing. Mm. Now you think about that last phrase, Christ died for nothing. That means he was incarnate for nothing. He lived, lived his sinless life for nothing. He did his healings for nothing. He did his teachings, the Sermon on the Mount, for nothing. He went to the cross for nothing. Gethsemane drank. He he was willing to drink the cup, but for what? For nothing. He shed his blood for nothing. He said, it is finished for nothing. He rose again from the dead for nothing. If salvation could be gained by the law, then there was no need for any of that. Hmm. God would have just pointed to the law and said, do this and you'll live, but we couldn't. And so that's why Paul says, I do not set aside the grace of God. Uh, the grace of God is the only way we're going to get saved. Andy, you're a church historian. How do you think the history of the church would have been different Mm -hmm. if the council at Jerusalem had decided to require Gentiles to become Jews by circumcision and by obedience to the law of Moses? And how would it have affected evangelism and missions among the Gentiles for 2,000 years? Honestly, it's hard to even answer the question because the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem through Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth was effected by the Holy Spirit who inspired all the New Testament. And so he's just not going to take that gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, mm. we could see in Islam, for example, uh, a, a, a perfect man-centered works-based religion. It's, it's like the, I think the most perfect craft or, or, or um, uh, result of Satan's craft of all the false religions that he started, Islam has been the, the most kind of perfect and uh, successful. And what I mean by perfect, obviously, I don't think it's in any way perfect, but it just lines up with human nature very well. It's got a heritage, a culture. It's got reasonable works that you can do. The five pillars of Islam are basically doable. Hmm. And you can earn your salvation. You you can pay for your sins by almsgiving and by the by the slogan, "There is no God but Allah," and Muhammad is the prophet of Allah. And and the the almsgiving and the and the pilgrimage to Mecca, you can do these things. And m- millions and millions of Muslims do. So maybe it would look like that. Hmm. Uh, it would look like a works based religion uh, that had spread. Now I would say the circumcision requirement is a tough one. So if you're like on the fence and you're not sure, you're trying to find out about religion, you find out <laughs> you got to do that, uh, I think that, that Christianity, so to speak, wouldn't even be Christianity, mm. uh, would be a lot smaller. It'd be a, a minor religion, might have died out. This is really the first deep doctrinal dispute recorded in church history. Mm-hmm. What does the fact that there are doctrinal disputes in the church post-Pentecost teach mm-hmm. us? Well, I think it's the effect of, of – uh, of the residual sin in the hearts of genuine believers in Christ. Uh, the same reason why we have to have to uh, work out our salvation with fear and trembling, that there is this thing called uh, sanctification, that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. All of that shows that this is, this is a work in progress. 
And so we don't see things clearly. Sometimes we don't see them the first few times that we see them. And it takes a while for our hearts to be softened. We have pride in a matter. You could imagine some teachers making strong statements on things that are wrong, and then they realize they're wrong, but now they're kind of, they've painted themselves into a corner and they're not willing to, to admit that they were wrong uh, or they're just being stubborn. Uh, so it just shows the effect of the flesh remaining in us. Pride, uh, a willful hardening of our hearts and inability to, to perceive the word. And as Jesus said to the Sadducees, you're in error because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. People don't study the scriptures sufficiently. They don't uh, bring to bear or rightly divide the word of truth. They're false. Uh, they have false applications. They may not be false teachers, but they have some aspects that they don't get right. Also, we've noticed as you study church history, every single individual seems to have blind spots that God in his providence allows people to have blind spots. And so there are no perfect teachers of the word of God. There are no uh, perfect livers out of the Christian life. Uh, We are all flawed, imperfect people. And yet, for all of us, our our flaws and imperfections, the church has advanced over 20 centuries by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's what I get out of that. As we look at verses 7 through 9, what's the centerpiece of Peter's argument concerning what God has done among the Gentiles? How does God purify the heart. Well, the centerpiece, the, the the main piece of evidence was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on uncircumcised Gentile converts. Okay? So Peter's there, tells a story. We've already seen it in, in Acts 10 and then recapitulated in Acts 11 of how he went to Cornelius's house, how the Lord had set the whole thing up with the sheet, remember? Of, of animals that were, it was let down from heaven, the sheet filled with all kinds of unclean animals, reptiles, different things that, that Jews were not allowed to eat. And he was told, uh, arise, Peter, kill and eat. And he said, never, I've never eaten anything impure, unclean. And then this statement uh, that the Lord made, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. But look what Peter says right here in the text we're looking at here. Um, he says, he purified their hearts by faith. Verse 9, it's an amazing statement. He purified their hearts by faith. So he got the message. So don't call them dirty. They're not dirty. They've been cleansed. Hmm. And so by faith, we are made clean. And therefore, the Holy Spirit could come. And the Holy Spirit did come probably through some manifestations of signs and wonders and specifically speaking in tongues. So they knew that the Holy Spirit had come on uncircumcised men like Cornelius. Hmm. And so Peter just derives from that the, the clear evidence. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, just like the, the day of Pentecost. He made no distinction between us and them, for he had purified their hearts by faith. That is such a beautiful statement, a cleansing of the heart by faith. It reminds me of Jesus uh, when he wanted to wash Peter's feet. And he said, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And he said, you don't understand what I'm doing, but later you will. Um, and he said, you'll never wash my feet. And then Jesus said, unless I wash you, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. So to rephrase it a little bit, unless I purify you, you can't go to heaven. I've got to, I've got to purify you. And then Peter said, all right, fine. Then not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus said, uh, he who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean and you are clean. 
he said. And so uh, also later in, in John 15, he says, you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. So what I get out of this is that by the preaching of the gospel that Peter did, the Gentiles were purified or made clean by faith in Christ. They were cleansed from all of their sins. Then the Spirit came visibly through the outpouring of the Spirit, through the baptism of the Spirit, and they uh, were uncircumcised men. So this shows that circumcision or uncircumcision means nothing. Uh, what counts is a new creation. What counts is faith in Christ. Now, Peter's very clear that this is not something they ought to require of the Gentiles, but he actually takes it a step further in verse mm -hmm. 10. Why would requiring the Gentiles to obey the law of Moses after they had received the Holy Spirit be putting God to the test. Mm -hmm. Yeah, putting God to the test means uh, basically, what are you going to do? We're going to disobey you. You know, they're they're running at cross purposes with God. You know, if you look back at Acts eleven, uh, when when the, uh, the people heard what Peter had done and they were talking about it, and uh, he's explaining his his uh, actions uh, to the church at Jerusalem, the circumcised believers said, criticized them and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them, Acts 11, 3. Then Peter told them the whole story. Um, and then, you know, the Holy Spirit came. That was the clincher. Uh, the Holy Spirit came. And then it says in Acts eleven eighteen, when they heard this, they had no further objections and praise God. Hmm. Saying so, then God has granted even to the Gentiles repentance unto life. So they were persuaded. Um, so God had acted decisively. And now you think he was wrong? He shouldn't have done it. He shouldn't have poured out the Spirit on them. They weren't ready for heaven. Well, that's testing God. At that point, you're thinking you know better than God. Mm. And you think, no, we've got to have a higher standard. God's slipping a bit. And we, we need to reestablish those standards. He said that that circumcision was in perpetuum. I mean, we're going to keep on, on uh, circumcised. It's a lasting ordinance and all that. They'd make all these arguments, not understanding what that verbiage meant from the Old Testament. But they would make that argument and say, you know, God was wrong. We need to reestablish this circumcision. That's putting God to the test. How does Peter argue from the history of the Jews concerning the law of Moses? And mm -hmm. how is the law a yoke that neither they nor their father have been able to bear? Okay, so the word yoke is a metaphor. It's a heavy piece of wood put across the necks of beasts of burden, like uh, a team of oxen, let's say. And, you know, we could picture it. You've seen it maybe uh, in farming communities or in, you know, with a Pennsylvania Dutch or something like that. You've got that yoke. And um, it goes across the neck of, of, a, of an ox uh, and then a, an ox next to it, a team of oxen. You can pull a plow or a cart or a wagon, something like that. And it's this heavy thing that, that binds the neck and of the animal and causes it to move to the will of the master. Um, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Um, but we also know that there's a yoke of slavery um, that Satan, the, the tyrant, had on our necks before we were converted. Well, here the language is you're trying to put a, 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 a yoke on the necks of the disciples that we are not able to bear. All it ever did was crush us. It, it would just crush us. Uh, and that was the one who does these things will live by them. You want to live? Keep the law. Mm. You want to live? Obey the law. How much of the, all of it? Well, for how long? Rest of your life. What if I've already violated it? Then you're condemned. And there's nothing I can do? Correct. Well, that's, that's a crushing burden. And Jesus said of the scribes and Pharisees, you, put, you tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but you yourself won't lift, lift a finger uh, to help them. 
And so this is a crushing burden. The fact is, if you are not perfect by your own efforts, you will be condemned forever. That's devastating. And so that's a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear. No one has ever been able to perfectly keep the law except one person, and that's Jesus. And Jesus alone was able to bear that yoke. Andy, let's lean into that a little more because it really is an amazing picture. You uh, spoke of Jesus mentioning his own yoke that he invites those who follow him to take on. How did Jesus handle the yoke of the law of Moses? Mm -hmm. And how does Jesus' obedience relate to our salvation? Well, Jesus, it says in Galatians, was born in the fullness of time, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law so that we might receive uh, full adoption or inheritance rights as sons. So he took on the burden of the law as a human being, as a Jewish man, as a Jewish boy baby, he was circumcised. Uh, we have a clear record of it in the Gospel of Luke. And then he fulfilled the law. He was born under the law and lived it. So all of the precepts of the law, all of the details, the minutia, Jesus absolutely perfectly obey the law. If he hadn't, the law would have stood against him and would have condemned him, and he could not have been our pure, sinless substitute. He would have died for his own sin. And so Jesus, therefore, did bear the heavy burden of the law, the, the summary, Jesus himself said it, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbors yourself. Jesus alone perfectly did that. But there are details. Uh, he uh, fulfilled the dietary regulations. Uh, he took part in the Passover and in the, in the three times a year Jewish festivals. Um, he did all the things that, that the law commanded him to do, and he refrained perfectly from all the things that the law forbade him from doing. Uh, but he went beyond that. He lived out the spirit and the heart of the law. You have heard that it was said, you shall not murder. But I tell you, if anyone's angry with his brother, he's in danger of the fire of hell. Jesus was never sinfully, murderously angry at anyone. Hmm. Jesus never lusted. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that if anyone even looks at a woman lustfully, he's already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus didn't commit any heart sins. He never coveted. He never coveted anything that belonged to anyone. Uh, he perfectly obeyed his parents. He honored his father and mother perfectly. Um, he didn't take the name of the Lord in vain. He fulfilled the Ten Commandments and all the other commandments as well. And in so doing, he wove together a perfect garment of righteousness, which he hands out to everyone who hears the gospel and says, if you put this on, you will survive judgment day. Let this, my perfect righteousness, be yours as a free gift. That's justification or the imputation of Christ's perfect law keeping to us. We are seen, therefore, in Christ to be as obedient to the law as Jesus. And so Paul says in Romans chapter 2 um, concerning people who have not been circumcised and yet keep the law, they'll be regarded as though they were circumcised. The man who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will, will condemn you who even though you have written the written code and circumcision are a lawbreaker. And so he's talking about Gentile converts. They're seen by God as, to ha as having been circumcised in the heart by the Spirit. Uh, not by the written code. And such a person's praise is from, is from God, not from men. Those are genuinely converted people whose circumcision is done not by hands, but by the Spirit of God. And if that happens to you, you're given a gift of perfect righteousness, the obedience of the law that Jesus won for us.
Andy, what is Peter's conclusion in this matter? And does Peter's speech end the discussion? Mm-hmm. He said, no, uh, vigorously, we reject this, this yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear. We believe that it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. So everybody's saved by grace through faith, as opposed to works. And so that's what he says. And, and he's just saying, Peter's saying very plainly there what Paul will, will write clearly both in Galatians and in Romans, that justification is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and no other way. Andy, what final thoughts do you have for us on this passage? Just to celebrate the gospel that we have been given. We thank God for the working that he's done in the church before that, uh, before us. And and this Jerusalem council is a picture of, of many theologically rich councils that preceded us, that hammered out key theological insights, including on the incarnation and on other issues, so that we inherited a solid, well-thought-out New Testament doctrine, including especially the gospel. And for that, we can give thanks. This has been episode 29 in our Acts Bible Study podcast. We would invite you to join us next time for episode 30, entitled The Jerusalem Council on Circumcision, Part 2, where we'll discuss Acts chapter 15, verses 12 through 35. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.